From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my good friend who is my co-host and producer Craig Williams. Craig, welcome back. It's April. Yes, it is. And the, a couple weeks ago, of course, the uh, Diz announced its plans for the big 20th anniversary Mega Meet. Yeah. So that should be a the, good time. Almost it, all of Epcot's uh, future world in one night, yeah. plus Illuminations, Reflection of Earth. That's uh, amazing. I love Illuminations, it is my favorite nighttime spectacular there at um, Walt Disney World. It is mine as well. So I I can't wait for it. I just, I've never, I mean, first off, we don't know how many people are coming. But second, I just don't know if I've ever seen, well, I definitely have never seen a fireworks show with that few people. I I just, I I just don't know how it's going to be. It's going to be almost spooky or eerie, probably, with no one being around. I know. I know. Just dizzers. (laughs) Yeah. wandering around so so i hope you all out there are going to be able to join us in uh in june june 1st to celebrate 20 happy years of the diz yes and, be and our we'll guest. be there yes be our guests and there's information of course at disunplugged.com and uh, i'm sure we'll have a link in our show notes um for that and then of course you can see me and craig and all of the other Diz Unplugged team, or a lot of them, um, in July at Disneyland for the D23 Expo. I am so excited for this. So I I know it doesn't sound like it, but uh, my, my throat is starting to get a little bit scratchy today. So uh, it's not my enthusiasm. My enthusiasm isn't coming out, but I promise you it is there. But I, I genuinely, I am so excited for D23. Uh, that Rhino and I have been talking about how great of a time we all had last year between, uh, you know, just going to the events, uh, you know, you and I getting to go and attend the the live action panel and the animated mm-hmm. panel, getting up early and spending that time with you and Carol waiting in line to, to get into these things and, uh, you know, just seeing these amazing things and then being able to cover it and talk about it right after. It was... It was just, you know, one of those once-in-a-lifetime things that we are so lucky that we get to do every two years and not just once-in-a-lifetime. So That's I, right. I'm looking forward to it. We will have our booth, and, uh, you know, so we will have some fun stuff for you there and uh, should have members of the team revolving in and out every now and then. But, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be one heck of a time. It so. is. It's, got, it's going to be fun. And I don't think any other I don't think there's many other you know sites that give as much coverage as we do so you definitely want to tune in oh yeah no, you know, we, to us we may not always be the first out with 
the breaking news from some of these events because well for especially for the live action and the animation we don't have we don't have the special passes that allow us to uh to tweet and facebook during the the middle of the actual presentation so we have to sit and wait until after but uh, I said it I said it back in 2013 I said it again in 2015 and I know I'm going to be saying it again this year no one takes notes during these panels as much as you do <laughs> and, <laughs> and we all get to greatly benefit from it because we have the recorded history of these these panels and they just then we get to talk about them on video and it, it's fantastic so it's That's going to true. be a great event it is. It's so much fun. And it's great fun meeting other Dizzers there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, I, a couple weeks ago, the the new banners came out for D23. Yeah. And they're really, really promoting how this isn't just Sorcerer Mickey, who's usually, he's not even on the banners, but they're really showing it's all the different worlds of Disney. Because they have Mar- a Marvel banner, they have, uh, they have um, BB-8 on a banner of course they have mickey and tinkerbell and uh, so it's so i think there's going to be a lot of announcements the fact that they have a marvel character i think it's iron man and bb-8 on there i think we can expect some announcements from the star wars and marvel worlds. oh absolutely no i i think you know, I, I really hope that the theme parks are going to uh, get a ton of love. I know, I know. Last year, actually, we we got or two years ago, I guess we got a fair share of it with um, with finding out about Star Wars Land for the very first time, getting a little bit more details on Avatar. Uh, you know, there there was a lot jam packed in there uh, with a lot of movie news being up front and center on that. But uh, hopefully, we get a lot of hopefully we get a lot of actual actual park news again this time around. But you know, I'm not going to complain if it's all if it's all movies all the time because I love those just as much. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Well, but even before then, we have. Four exciting episodes in April to bring you of connecting with Walt. So, so let's let's get started on that. Um, in episode twenty-five, Craig and I donned our professorial robes and we held our first Disney one hundred and one course on books. In this episode, we're continuing our Disney one hundred and one course. This time, covering films and music. We believe our Connecting with Walt scholars will find of historic interest or deepen their knowledge and appreciation for Walt Disney and his accomplishments. Now, this is not a this isn't a comprehensive list. Uh, it just represents the music, films, and audio that Craig and I routinely view or reference, or maybe just uh, we just enjoy watching from time to time. Yeah. We've tried to include media that's currently available on CD, DVD, or online, but some of it uh, you may have to dig for, but it, it's worth it's worth the dig in there. So, so Professor, are you ready? I am absolutely ready. <laughs> Great. So why don't we start out then with um, some, some important um, 
animated Disney films. And I'm going to start out with actually some we're going to be talking about in our next episode. And the, it's the Walt Disney Treasure Series. And all of these, you know, the tins, you know, we call them, all of these are wonderful. But one that I think anyone that is interested in, in Disney his animated history should watch is The Adventures of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And the, this disc has a, a collection of um, several of Oswald's greatest hits. Of course, Oswald was really the first Disney star um, before Mickey Mouse. And so on disc one, it, you'll find from 1927 will be Trolley Troubles and O oh Teacher, The Mechanical Cow, Great Guns, All Wet, and The Ocean Hop. And two of these, O oh Teacher and The Ocean Hop, in, in the bonus material, have audio commentaries by uh, Mark Kostler, who is a Disney... Um, well, actually, his career, it goes beyond Disney. But he is an animator, a director, a writer, an actor, and a producer. And he's done everything from Disney to The Simpsons to Ren and Stimpy and all kinds of things. Um, from the 1928 Oswald series, you have um, Rival Romeos, uh, Bright Lights, Ozzy of the Mounted, Oh What a Night, K-N-I-G-H-T, Skyscrapers, The Fox Chase, and Tall Timber. Also in the bonus material, there's commentaries by Leonard Malton and Jerry Beck and Mark Kosler in all of these. There's also um, some great bonus material. Um, um, It's a documentary on Oswald Comes Home, how Oswald the Lucky Rabbit returned to the Walt Disney Company's ownership. And there's, uh, there's some audio commentaries on some of the other films. There's also some still frame galleries. There's also, uh, on disc two, there's The Hand Behind the Mouse. It's the story of, of Iwerks. And there's some of his um, work as well. They also have a few, um, they have three Alice comedies on there. The Before Oswald, um, which you can, we talked about the um, Alice comedies in a previous episode. They have Alice Gets Stung, Alice in the Woolly West, and Alice's Balloon Race. And they have three that would have been on my list separately if they weren't on this Treasures series. That's um, Mickey's first films, Plain Crazy, Steamboat Willie, and then the first Silly Symphony, Skeleton Dance, which I think are all very important um films in Disney history. So, um so what do, what Craig, what are your thoughts about the Oswald series? I know next week we're going to talk a whole lot more about this. Yeah. But no, I I actually love uh I I love this one. So by the uh by the time that I was able to start affording these sets, um cuz the whole Walt Disney Treasure series launched back in in 2001, so uh, it, it's really hard to think about it in this way, but I was I was just uh, fourteen when these started being released, and um, so yeah, I, I did not have income to buy these, and I believe they were being sold around like thirty dollars at the time uh, mm-hmm. when they came out, and you know they were kind of going back and forth between three or four being released, and um, I, I 
I was not the the greatest kid growing up, and I think I would have been a little bit hard pressed to ask my parents at the time uh, to spend that much money on all these movies for me. So uh, <laughs> I, I didn't get a lot of them uh, when they were originally out. And but um, by by two thousand seven, you know, I was I was already in college when the Oswald one came out. So th- this is one that I made sure to grab. Uh, and uh, along with the other ones that were during that release, and I, I watched it all up and down. And while while Oswald is still is still rough um, in terms of animation, definitely a step up from Alice, as you've heard us talk about all the Alice comedies before. Um, you know, it's these are still very very enjoyable, and I I totally get why people are in love with the character of Oswald. Um, it's just a, a lot of personality still, again, the stories weren't great at that time, but, uh, just really enjoyable shorts. And, uh, then yeah, I, I recommend it if you can pick it up, uh, in that set. So there, there's actually another Walt Disney treasure that released during that time that I really enjoy that mm-hmm. I could talk about unless you have, uh, anything else to say about Oswald. No, no, go ahead. Okay, well, so, so that was Wave 7, I believe, that uh, included the Oswald one. But during that release, another one came out uh, called Disneyland Secret Stories and Magic. And uh, there, was a, there was a documentary that went along with it that was uh, produced as part of the big uh, 50th anniversary of Disneyland. And it's a really great documentary. Um, you know, a little bit of new facts here and there that you may not have heard of uh, before that were uh, put in. But the highlight of this for me was that it had... Um, people and places on it and the people and places they had on it was Disneyland USA and this uh, the you know I, I didn't know what people and places was before I, I saw this for the very first time and of course it was uh, Walt's one of the off projects very similar to True Life Adventures mm-hmm. um, in a sense documentaries that looked at different parts of the world this one's based solely on Disneyland USA and it is just stunning stunning footage of Disneyland back in 1956 uh, just as it was new but I mean Chris film that was just preserved perfectly and the only thing I wish is that this would be out on Blu-ray so you could have it in an even better format than just DVD but um, this this disc is worth tracking down just for that and there you know there's other good things on it besides the documentary and that they have uh, kind of a rehash of material that's available in other places Uh, disc 2 features Operation Disneyland um the behind the scenes before the live broadcast for Disneyland, uh, uh, a wonderful world of color episode on the golden horseshoe review, uh, Disneyland goes to the world's fair, another wonderful world of color episode. And then one more that's Disneyland around the seasons. Um, and that of course took a look at all of the attractions that came from the world's fair. So th- there's definitely lots of gems on this set. But the highlight standout is that people and places. It's I, I could watch it over and over again. 
Yeah, a lot of people aren't aware of that series. They're aware of the True Life Nature series, but not that what also did basically a cultural series. So uh, that, again, was groundbreaking, you know, in its time. Yeah, I mean, it was the first of its kind. Yeah, I believe I found one more episode of People and Places on YouTube, and I found on uh, iTunes, they have one of the soundtracks for one of the People and Places, but there is not a lot out there on it, and it's it's killing me that TCM hasn't picked up on this yet for the treasures from the Disney Vault, uh, you know, specials that they do every couple months, because I feel like they, they could really get some unseen stuff out there or not unseen, but things that haven't been seen in the longest time for Disney fans. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, so, um, continuing with our animated films, of course, I already mentioned Plane Crazy Steamboat Willie Skeleton Dance. And, you know, again, in, in, in our next, um, you know, coming up in the next couple of seasons of Connecting with Walt, we're going to address the Silly Symphonies and Mickey Mouse. So, but definitely when you watch the Oswald series, watch the Plain Crazy Steamboat Willie Skeleton Dance. Steamboat Willie, of course, being the um, first time we see and hear Mickey Mouse talk. And then Skeleton Dance was the first Silly Symphony where um, Walt told a story in just, um, you know, just through art and music with no dialogue. So, so definitely groundbreaking. And all of those led up to what's next on my list of must, must watches in terms of Disney animation history. And that is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, this was the first full-length Disney animated feature film, and it premiered at the Carthay Circle Theater on December 21st, 1937, um, followed by a nationwide release on February 4th, 1938. And this was a critical and commercial success after being, you know, labeled Disney's Folly as he worked on it. Um, at the 11th Academy Awards, you know, as you know, Walt Disney was awarded an honorary Oscar, and the film was nominated for Best Musical Score the year before. It's been re-released theatrically many times until it was released on home video in the 1990s. And in 1989, the United States Library of Congress deemed the film culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And it ranked in the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest American films. And it was named the film as the greatest American animated film of all time in 2008. And, of course, this film launched uh, a... Uh, it launched the... Um, construction, of course, of the Burbank Studios. It resulted in several popular theme park attractions, um, a video game. There was even a Broadway musical that was had a very short run. It, uh, it featured, it starred an unknown Mary Jo Salerno. She played Snow White. And it was also known, it was first known as Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and then also um, Snow White Live. So the Radio City Music Hall. And there were music and lyrics for four new songs created by Jay Blackton and Joe Cook. 
with songs like Welcome to the Kingdom of Once Upon a Time and Will I Ever See Her Again. It ran from October 18th to November 18th, 1979, and January 11th to March 9th, 1980. So it had 106 performances. And of course, this was um, the first Disney princess that, that launched launched all the other princesses. So, uh, and this is absolutely one of my very, very favorite films of all times. And I think it holds up very well. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Um, it's it's just as beautiful as I imagine it was the. <laughs> the very first night that everyone got to see it at Carthay Circle uh, for mm-hmm. its premiere. Uh, you know, <laughs> this was actually one of my sick day movies that I would watch when I was growing up. If I was sick, I would pop in the VHS tape. I, I, I remember seeing it at the drive-in. Um, it, it's just always been a movie that I've been fascinated with, mm-hmm. and I truly enjoy it. And it, it has a ton of repeatability. And you know, it, it's just thinking about how this was the first, but uh, this could have easily been, you know, his 20th movie with how perfect it is. But it was the first. It's just it's brilliant for that. Yeah. And in terms of storytelling, you know, there's the famous story of how Walt had all the animators come back after hours. He gave them you know, 50 cents or something, I don't know what, to have dinner. And then they um, came back and he told the whole story, acted out every scene. And because he had it all worked out in his head. This is also the first musical where the music is integrated into the film where and into the into the action, whereas in, in musicals up until that time, the, the dialogue would progress and then things would stop, they'd break in the song, and then the movie would continue. And this is where the the music was seamlessly worked into the story of the film, which changed um, movie musicals completely. So, yes. So, definitely you have to see... um, have to see Snow White. Yeah, and I, I know you took it off your list, uh, but I think it's still worth honorably mentioning. But of course, Pinocchio, mm-hmm. um, and if not for anything else, uh, just recently uh, I was talking with Rhino about this, and uh, it even popped up in a Dispop episode. But um, you know, regardless of how you feel about Pinocchio, whether you enjoy it or not, just the fact that. It brought us when you wish upon a star is yes. it, that just cannot be it can't be overvalued at any at any cost. Um, it's it is the song that transcends through everything Disney, and it's it's amazing, it's wonderful, and you know if you turn off Pinocchio right after the opening. And you just want to sit through when you wish upon a star, that's fine. But, uh, you know, to, to truly appreciate Walt, to appreciate everything we talk about, uh, you, you almost have to love that song. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, of the classic animated films, this is my favorite, is Pinocchio. And, yeah, I took it. It was the last minute I removed it from my list. But uh, but it's significant also for the use of the multi-plane camera. It was the first time it was used in the uh, 
in a feature film. Walt, you know, had used it in the old mill and and elsewhere to sort of test it out. But that's where it gave a dimension where you could move through the scenes and um, things in the foreground would uh, and the background, they would change sizes the way they do in real life as the camera moved in and out of the scene. So, of course, the classic scene is when you're in Pinocchio's, you know, Geppetto's village, Pinocchio's village, on the day that Pinocchio's going to school and you have that aerial shot that starts out, um, you know, the ringing of the church bell and the doves fly out and then how it moves through the um, village as it goes down and finally focuses on Geppetto's workshop as he gets Pinocchio off to school. And you hear the music of the village, you know, rise up as everybody wakes up. And I mean, that's spectacular. And if you see the, and I don't know if, I don't know which version of Pinocchio it's on, but there's a little documentary on where you see them creating just that scene. And it is amazing how they did that as these huge glass panels move in and out as the camera, you know, moves in. And uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, I don't believe I've seen that. But yeah, or I'm just forgetting. It's <laughs> yeah, these one glass. Of these two. Yeah, it's these glass panels with all the um, different layers of the scene painted on them, and and they move as the camera, you know, goes in, you know, through it. I mean, it's it's remarkable. That's uh, one of the of all the times I've been now to the Disney Studios, uh, the portion of the tour where you get to see the multiplane camera. I, I still could just stare at this thing mm-hmm. just for, you know, looking at it for an hour, but they treat it as like a, a two minute walk up. Okay. Well, here's the multi-plane camera. It was used in the old mill and then in movies afterwards. And now let's go into the archives. It's like, yeah. oh, oh, we have to sit here and appreciate this. Yeah. And at the <laughs> Walt Disney family museum where they have the other one, it spans two stories. I do. Just and, another reason why I need to get out there. Yeah, and and they have a, a little documentary there, and on the use of the multiplane camera, and they show how it was used in the old mill, and Walt's explaining its use, and then of course, then they show the the classic Pinocchio scene, and then you can, and you're standing up there, and you're peering all the way down, and the rest of the camera is in the um, bookstore. So you can see the bottom there, but the the top of the camera is is you know two stories up in um, in in one of the galleries. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So, so that you really get an idea of how large that camera was. So, so my, the next one on my list is Fantasia. Uh, as a must-see. This is the third Disney animated film. The film consists of eight animated segments. Uh, It's set to pieces of classical music conducted by Leopold Stokowski, and seven of the pieces are performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, Music critic and composer Deems Taylor acts as the film's master of ceremonies, and he provides a live-action introduction to each animated segment. Now, Fantasia was first released in theatrical Roadshow engagements, and it was held in 13 U.S. cities from November 13, 1940. And it was acclaimed by critics, but it was unable to make a profit due to World War II cutting off distribution to the European market. 
Um, so the film's high production costs and the expense of leasing theaters and installing what um, what it, what Walt created the Fantasound equipment for the roadshow presentations. This was really Fantasound was the 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 was the really the first of what we would call um, like the THX sound and. And, and all that that we have in theaters today. Um, this was where there were the the theater was equipped with all these speakers surrounding the theater, so that you would have the stereophonic sound, but the music would move throughout the theater as the um, characters and scenes moved. So it was unlike anything audiences has heard at the time. It was also incredibly expensive to do. So. Um, so, but you know, ultimately, it, it, the film was subsequently reissued multiple times. Um, some of its original footage and audio was deleted or modified or restored in each version. Um, this, though, finally did make a profit. It's now considered the 22nd highest grossing film of all time in the United States. Um, Fantasia as a franchise has grown to include video games, theme park attractions, um, live concerts. Um, it, there was a theatrically released sequel, Fantasia 2000. Um, and it's grown in reputation over the years. In 1998, the American Film Institute ranked it as the 58th greatest American film in their 100 years of 100 movies and the 5th greatest animated film in her top uh, their 10 top 10 list and some of the things in here um have gone on to really live on in in disney legend you know the nutcracker suite with the dancing of uh, the little dancing mushrooms of course mickey mouse this was this resurrected mickey mouse's career um the sorcerer's apprentice um, is part of this segment. Well, that's probably that is my favorite um, role of Mickey Mouse is the Sorcer- Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, and that's the host for Fantasia um, and a host of other you know Disney shows. Um, the um, the Rite of Spring, of course, that was an inspiration that was that's was for um, one of the World's Fair, 1964 World's Fair pavilions, and is now when you ride the, the, the Disneyland Railroad, you see scenes that were inspired um, from the Rite of Spring sequence, you know, as you go through the Grand Canyons um, sequence. The Pastoral symph- um, Symphony with all the mythical Greco-Roman world of the colorful centaurs and centaurettes, um, you know that those those figures are you know in the Pegasus and and all that those are still used uh, in a lot of other Disney films. They are used in um, Disneyland Paris uh, and some of the other international parks. Of course, everybody's favorite is the Dance of the Hours, um, you know, or the the Camp Granada song. <laughs> um, um, this is the comic ballet in four sections. You know. Madame Upanova and her ostriches. That is the morning scene. Hyacinth Hippo and her servants. They're the afternoon. Elephantine and her bubble-blowing elephant troop. They're evening. And Ben Alligator and his troop of alligators. They're the night. And, of course, the finale 
you know, has all the characters dancing together until their palace collapses. Again, these are classic figures that you, um, that they've been in other um, film productions and again appear in other um, Disney parks. And, and of course, um, they're always at the Epcot Flower and Garden Festival in Topiaries. Um, and then my favorite Disney villain is featured in Night on Bald Mountain. And, and the scene where parents take their little children out of the theaters. And that's Chernabog. At midnight, the devil Chernabog awakes and summons evil spirits and restless souls from their graves to Bald Mountain. And uh, and then, of course, and, and I'm always shocked this is a Disney film when you look at the figures here. And then the spirits dance and fly through the air until they're driven back by the sound of the Angelus spell and night fades into dawn. And then, of course, we hear um, Ave Maria singing is a line uh, of robed monks um, walk with um, lit torches through a forest and into the ruins of a cathedral. I just think this is a just a truly magnificent and groundbreaking film, especially when you know there 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 are also the um, sort of the surrealistic art scenes with the orchestra and the um, the the soundtrack during intermission. This sort of got repeated in the Three Caballeros. And um, so I, I think this is a must-see because nothing like this had ever been made before. Um, you know, all these short segments being um, put together and allowing music, again, to tell the story of, of this feature. Yeah, and I mean, we're not going to lie and say it's easy for just everyone to get through because it's... It, it's not. You have to. You definitely have to have an appreciation for it. But um, I, I know, as a, a kid of the '90s, this was this was one of the first uh, VHS tapes that was available. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, it's really the reason we have all the VHS tapes that we do at Disney, and obviously led on to DVD and now Blu-ray. The reason we were lucky enough to have this is because Fantasia was such a huge seller um, on home format. Uh, Otherwise, it it just might have stuck with the same rotation that was constantly happening, that every seven years, theatrical re-releases. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't lucky enough to have Fantasia on VHS as a as a kid, but we had neighbors that did, and it's it was what I always wanted to watch, and um, it's you know even for that alone, it's it's cool to think that we might not have these Disney movies as readily available uh, for when when we want to watch them if it wasn't for Fantasia, and that's that's neat. I agree, and but I do miss the seven year cycle. Because it was so nice to see these on large screens yeah, with and good it, sound. And it was nice for a while. Cinemark was doing the uh, show in four different Disney movies each week. Um, and that has finally just gone extinct a little bit mm-hmm. while back, which which is a shame. Um, but, yeah, no, it's these, these movies still need to be seen on the big screen whenever possible. And I, I think Disney should focus heavily more on getting them onto big screens when when they can. But, you know, it, it is nice to also be able to pop in your favorite movie without having to go to the theater and make a whole production of it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. There's positives and negatives. <laughs> exactly. So, so next on my list is Cinderella. And this is based on the fairy tale Cendrillon by Charles Perrault, or Perrault. It is the 12th Disney animated feature film. And the reason this is significant to me is at this time, um, Walt Disney Productions had suffered from um, its lost box office from the European film markets due to the outbreak of World War II. And as a result... Films that were incredibly expensive and beautiful, like uh, like Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi, drained the the financial resources of the Walt Disney Studios because they were all financial failures. They would later become more successful with... um, several re-releases in theaters due to the seven-year cycle that we talked about where Disney, you know, Walt believed that about every seven years you had a new generation of children who would be ready to see these films. So all the films would be released every seven years and of the animated films. And some of the live-action ones were on a, a slightly different um, release schedule. And then, of course, when they came out on home video, they also became um, financially successful. However, after the war, um, the studio was over $4 million in debt, and Walt had no idea. It, It was on the verge of bankruptcy, and he wasn't sure how to pull it out. So they decided to turn back to what had worked for them and to feature film production. They had had a number of films in various stages of production prior to the war. So um, so they started out by quickly, in 1948, they, you know, they produced a string of package films, um, you know, that, that we'll talk about. But then, um, then they decided to adapt... Cinderella into a motion picture. And this is the, this is significant in for a couple of reasons. It's the first Disney film which all of Disney's nine old men, those are Disney's um, nine of his original animators who became legends, they worked together as directing animators. And so after two years in production, Cinderella was finally released on February 15th, 1950. And this is going to make a break to studios. Walt said that if this film was not successful, they were done. And so he had everything riding on this film. He decided to go back to what had worked with Snow White. And um, it became the greatest critical and commercial hit for the studio since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And it completely reversed the studio's fortunes. Um, for many people, this is one of um, their, this is their favorite, or at least one of their favorite of the princesses and of the animated films. Um, this was selected uh, as one of the best American animated films by the American Film Institute. It receives three Academy Award nominations, including Best Music, or Best Original Song for Bippity Boppity Boo. And um, Decades later, it was followed by two direct-to-video sequels, uh, which we don't talk about. And then, um, and of course, a, a beautiful castle rising in the Magic Kingdom, in out your way, Craig. And, and a 2015 live-action remake um, directed by Kenneth Branagh. And um, 
I, I, Cinderella was one of the first animated Disney films that I saw with a group of friends when I was a boy, when it was on its, you know, its, its seven year cycle. I think I was like eight years old or something. And I just loved this film. Just, I loved everything about it. The, the scene where she's transformed into, from her, her rags into her ball gown. I just thought that was the most magical scene I'd ever seen. I've come to appreciate it more as I got older when I realized that was all hand drawn, you know, by yeah. uh, Mark Mark oh, Davis. I... And that was that Walt said out of any film, that was his favorite scene. Yeah, well, no, it was that the, scene. I mean, the entire movie is just pure magic. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that goes without saying. I. There's not even a musical sequence in the movie that I think is weak at all. Um, you know, my my favorite one is "So This Is Love." But just mm-hmm. the the whole sequence, dancing, everything about it just just works perfectly. Um, it's it, it's really one of those movies I I can't criticize. I've loved it ever since I was a kid. When I was a kid, I, I enjoyed it for the mice. I you know. It's always fun saying Gus Gus over and over again. Um, mm-hmm. And then the older I got, it's just I started appreciating it for the actual artwork that was that was done for the movie. And yeah, it's it, it's still a favorite to this day. And the use of um, even the way they used light and shadow then was very different from what they had done in the past, and it, it, it created like this. Oh, I don't know, like even like the outdoor scenes when they're dancing, when they're at the ball, and she's like, I don't know, there was just like this um, ethereal wispiness or something to it that I, I, I just don't know how they captured it. And I don't think you could capture it any other way except through hand drawn animation. Yeah, I agree. No, it's mm-hmm. uh, CGI, I just can't do. Yeah, can't do yeah. what the hand drawn can do. Yeah, and I loved the um, remake, you know, and I, I'm not sold on remakes. I mean, you and I were talking before the show about the r- recent remake of Beauty and the Beast. Um, we were talking off mic. And um, the, Cinderella, though, to me, is like sort of the the high point of the live-action remakes. I mean, if they have to make them, I think they're unnecessary. But this one um, is at the top of my list. Yeah, I I completely agree. Uh, the live action Cinderella, it was, it was, just perfectly done in terms of everything. The costume design, staying true to the story while adding enough uh, little elements to make it just slightly different, worth retelling in a new way. Um, it it did what it should do, but then again. Kenneth Branagh was directing it and I mean he's just unreal in mm-hmm. terms of his talents I mean yes he's, he's made a bad movie or two here and there and his acting skills um, especially as Gilderoy Lockhart in the Harry Potter series isn't <laughs> isn't as strong as it could be but um, it, you know he has a real eye towards uh, towards uh, Shakespeare and I, I just said that really weirdly, but um, you know that's that's kind of what his eyes on, and Cinderella fits that mold in a way, and mm-hmm. uh, because of that, he he was a brilliant choice to direct it, and he he truly 
truly did it justice with that. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it is my favorite of the remakes. But I am in the same boat as you. If if there is no reason, no legitimate reason to to remake a movie, then it probably shouldn't be done. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so far for me, you know, as, as much as I hate it, yeah, Maleficent. They wanted to do it from a different twist. I think they failed at it, but I see why they wanted to do it now that we've had a couple other installments and uh, Pete's Dragon was one that they took it a different way and mm-hmm. I thought was a success. Not a perfect movie, but just really enjoyable. And mm-hmm. I uh, agree, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, Jungle Book, obviously, ton of people love that. I I was one of them too, but that's that bordered right on that line of you know, with some a couple of bad choices, a little bit more Christopher Walken singing, and it could have been a disaster. Oh, I know. Um, yeah, and you know, it's interesting. And I don't know, maybe this is a conversation for another episode. But you know, Walt always said that they would only animate stories that couldn't be told live, live action. We're getting to that point that they can tell almost anything through live action because of CGI. But um, and, but they're not telling it through the right medium. Um, mm-hmm. Animation allows for things that CGI still can't do because there's still... Animation, as weirdly as it sounds, it has more warmth to it than CGI right. does. CGI, especially the, the dead eyes on CGI... They just still haven't figured out how to perfect them. Um, and it, it still has a coldness to it that hand-drawn animation, mm-hmm. uh, it, it still just gives off so much. And, uh, you know, it, it is a shame that uh, with the with the live action, using CGI as that crutch, um, it, it just because it can be told in that way doesn't mean it should. I, I feel like... Mm-hmm feel like someone needs to go watch Ratatouille and hear that everyone can cook, but that doesn't mean everyone should cook. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think, it, and that goes right back to what I said about how the, the, the atmospheres and the environments they created in Cinderella could only be done through, I believe, hand-drawn animation. Uh, and I'd, ex- I'd extend that to the backgrounds on mm-hmm. Sleeping Beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's You can't recreate those any other way. Uh, it, it just can't. Yeah, agreed. So, well, and then I'm I'm jumping way forward over lots of animated films, and I think this ties into what we're talking about now, and that is Princess and the Frog, and that's the 49th Disney animated animated feature film. This film was loosely based on the novel The Frog Princess by Edie Baker, and which in turn was based on the Brother Grimm fairy tale The Frog. Prince. Now, this marked Disney's return to traditional animation. It was the studio's first traditionally animated film since Home on the Range in 2004. This <laughs> is not on my list. Um, co directors uh, Ron Clements and John Musker, who uh, were the directors, of course, of Little Mermaid, Aladdin, um, they returned to Disney to direct The Princess and the Frog. And with this film, the studio returned to a Broadway musical-style format that was frequently used during 
the Disney Renaissance when all those films I mentioned were produced. Um, it features music written by composer Randy Newman, who we know for his work on the Pixar films like A Bug's Life, um, Monsters, Inc., um, you know, Cars, the Toy Story trilogy. And um, this is also Disney's return to musical films as well. Um, Princess and the Frog opened in limited release in New York and Los Angeles on November 25th, 2009 and went into wide release on December 11th, 2009. The film was successful at the box office. It ranked first place on its opening weekend in North America and it received three Academy Award nominations at the 82nd Academy Awards, one for Best Animated Feature and two for its achievement in music. Um, you know, original song and original score, it lost to Up and Crazy Heart. Um, although this film is regarded as a turning point for Walt Disney Animation Studios, the reason this is on my list is because it was the last traditionally animated Disney film to date. Um, looking back on the experience, Ed Catmull, who's the president of Pixar Animation Studios and Walt Disney Animation Studios, he acknowledged that Disney had made a serious mistake, that's in quotes, in the process of marketing and releasing the film. Um, the Walt Disney Studios marketing department had warned Disney Animation that the word princess in the title would lead moviegoers to think the film was for girls only. But the Animation Studios management insisted on keeping the princess title because they truly believed that the film's excellent quality and beautiful hand-drawn animation would bring in people anyway. Well, as Ed Catmull said, this belief was our own version of a stupid pill. Um, the marketing department turned out to be correct. Um, people did avoid the film because they thought it was for little girls only. This was made worse by the fact that the film opened five days before Avatar. So, um, John Lasseter told Variety, I was determined to bring back hand-drawn animation because I felt it was such a heritage of the Disney studio and I love the art form. I was stunned that Princess didn't do better. We dug into it and did a lot of research and focus groups. It was viewed as old-fashioned by the audience, which surprises me because it was set not, not quite modern times, but close to it. Sort of the I I love this film. I think the backgrounds, everything, it's just so beautiful. I love the story. Uh, it was um, I love jazz music, so that helps. Uh, of course, it's groundbreaking because it was our first non-European um, Disney princess, and with Tiana, um, it was set in the United States which, again, is something unusual, set in New Orleans. Um, there were some very scary things in here. I mean, this went into the voodoo and the occult and, you know, things like that. And um, I, I, I just love this film. It, uh, it, you know, Princess Tiana, at least at Disneyland, she's still featured. You know, for a while she was featured in New Orleans Square every year during the, um, you know, the Bayou celebration, you know, Mardi Gras time. And um, I, you know, what's and what's sad is this was the last time they used princess in a title. Um, you know, Rapunzel was, you know, re 
renamed as uh, Tangled. Um, the 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 Ice Prince, the, the Ice Queen, was renamed Frozen. I mean, all this because of the box office failure of The Princess and the Frog. But um, this stands as one of uh, of the modern classic animated films. This is my favorite film. Oh yeah, no, it's I. This movie kicked off the whatever we're calling this age of Disney movies. Um, it it didn't start with with it's like the Tangled. Disney revival um, or something they call it. Yeah, I think it's it, it all started with Princess and the Frog. It's a shame that uh, I, I think you and I have both come to the uh, conclusion that this will in fact be the last hand drawn animated movie we we see. Uh, you know, I don't want to say for our lifetimes, but it's very, very possible in that. But it's it it, it, was, it was such a good movie, and you know, I the reason I went and saw it in theaters is because I saw every Disney movie in theaters. I mm-hmm. I went through that phase, obviously, when I, I was. I'm, I'm still in that phase, Chris. Yeah. Well, no, I, I went through <laughs> that phase in in college and in high school where I didn't go see Disney movies. Um, but I, I, I don't know what it was. I, I think it was sometime around, uh, it was sometime around when Ratatouille was released or it, one of those movies, something clicked on me or it might've even been when Toy Story was re-released and shown as a double feature in 3D that it just like all came, came back to me. My love for the Disney movies just, that was kind of kind of slowly fading away just came back full force and I, I do blame I do blame movies like Home on the Range for taking me out of of that love for Disney movies but it, it Princess and the Frog was one of those ones that like solidified like okay yeah I, I can get back into it and you know yeah we we've, I mean we did have Winnie the Pooh so but that was you know that was a sequel of sorts. I don't, uh, and it's just not like Princess and the Frog. Um, mm-hmm. That was that was just such a special film, and yeah, I I think it it is something that everyone should see. It kills me. Kylie still hasn't even watched it. Every time I suggest we sit down and watch it, even she has that perception of it. Eh, sometime we'll watch it sometime. Oh, yeah. she, she will love it. I you know, I know she will. I sing all a, the songs. It has uh, a great storyline. I, mean, I I mean I for some reason almost there as part of my repertoire of songs mm-hmm. I just randomly sing around the house. Um and as well as dig a little deeper. It's just yes. and she knows like that's that. the sad part. She knows the words from me singing them, but she's <laughs> never seen the movie. So <laughs> who knows? You just have to <laughs> sit down and pop it in and say this is what we're doing tonight. Yep. Yep. <laughs> But now, of course, I left. There are others. People are saying, well, how could Beauty and the Beast not be on there as the first first animated film nominated for an Academy Award uh, for Best Picture? And then it was, it launched, of course, its own category. Um, You know, that, that, and I agree. And and I could have put that on the list. Are there any others that you'd like to add to this list, Craig, of must see? Um, it, it, I mean, honestly, the list of must-see animated is 
all of them. Uh, well, yeah. But any <laughs> that you think are historic or ground my, my go-tos for the his, historic that are important, especially to help connect with Walt's legacy, um, in my one and two, uh, the ones we started off with, Snow White and Pinocchio. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can tell you that's that's all you need to know for the rest of it, uh, okay. at least for, for a good amount of time. And then there's other ones that can help you learn. We're going to talk about a couple documentaries later on, I believe, but, um, like one of the documentaries I'd recommend that I'll just throw it out now. I don't need to go in big depth on it is Walt and El Grupo. And, mm-hmm. um, to really appreciate that one, which is a fascinating look into, to Walt's life during that time and his travels to South America. But then you need to connect that by actually being very, uh, very into uh, the three caballeros and saludos amigos, which would be a lot easier if they'd just be available on Blu-ray, but they're still not, unfortunately, along with the Black Cauldron and uh, Make Mine Music and one other one that I can't remember. But yeah, no, I, I think those two would also stand out as well. Um, of something that will help complete your your education of Walt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So now, but let's move into live action. Um, there is for me these these were ones I loved as a boy, and they launched my love of reading um, because I liked the film so much. I actually read the books, and a lot of these were you know in my day there were just certain books that boys read. And um, and the first one was Treasure Island. Um, this is a 1950 live action adventure film produced by the Walt Disney Productions. It's adapted um, from the Robert Louis Stevenson 1883 novel Treasure Island because this starred Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins and Robert Newton as Long John Silver. Um, this is notable for being Disney's first completely live action film. And it's the first screen version of Treasure Island that was made in color. There were other versions made by other studios. It was filmed in England on location and at Denham Film Studios in Buckinghamshire. Um, Now, the reason that this even got to be made was that following World War II, the British government had imposed a 75% import tax on American films shot in Britain and ordered that 45% of the films shown in British theaters be made in England. So additionally, the French, who agreed to a similar quota um, aided largely by the American State Department and British governments had both impounded receipts earned by American studios in those countries as a way of making sure the currency be spent there. So basically, as Walt said, um, after the war, we still had the frozen fund situation in Europe. So in order to get the funds out of England, they wanted me to go to England and do something. I had this story, Treasure Island, I'd wanted to do. And I suggested we go over and do Treasure Island, and that way we'd use our funds. Making a picture over there seemed the most logical way of making use of these frozen funds. And he added, all in all, the project worked out very well, and I believe we are getting a very good picture. Um, Walt also applied what he learned from making animated feature films to making live-action films, including the use of storyboards for live-action films. Um, That had never been done before. Um, Walt's use of storyboards would become common practice by live-action filmmakers. 
Now, I think for me, um, uh, Robert Newton is the quintessential pirate. He set the pattern for all movie pirates. Um, in 1954, he reprised his role of Long John Silver in a non-Disney sequel, and and it was called Long John Silver. And he went on to play Silver again in a television series, um, The Adventures of Long John Silver, made in 1954 and 55. Um, this was also shot at Pagewood Studios um, in Sydney, and it was made um, before Australia had television. And this film has been recognized by the American Film Institute. Um, it's Long John Silver was nominated as as a villain in their 100 Heroes and Villains. It was re-released to, to um, theaters several times. Um, when it finally had to be given a rating in 1975, they rated it PG. So... But the thing is, at the time, Disney had a G-only policy. And so that wouldn't be relaxed for another four years to allow PG-rated films. So they cut the film to receive a G rating, and it totaled nine minutes of cuts. So um, so basically, the, uh, as the film got re-released and re-released, uh, ever since... Um, 1991 um, they've had the full version of the film they re- went back and restored it so um, for me I love this film and it never gets old I, I just think it's it's a, the perfect film yeah it's one that I don't watch often but um, it's just it, it's great like so many of the uh the live action Walt Disney films in the the fifties and then the early sixties. It's mm-hmm. it's just special. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So if you've not seen this, go out and watch it. You'll have a a greater appreciation for the Pirates of the Caribbean attractions <laughs> at Disneyland and at the Magic Kingdom too. Um, another one of my favorites, and I, I this got me to read the book as well. My parents loved that this got me to to reading literature um swiss family robinson this is a 1960 american family film starring john mills dorothy mcguire james MacArthur, janet monroe tommy kirk and kevin corcoran uh this is a tale of a shipwrecked shipwrecked family building an island home it's very loosely based on an 1812 novel, um, The Swiss Family Robinson by Johann David Weiss. Um, the film was directed by Ken Anakin and it was shot in Tobago and the Pinewood Studios outside of London. It was the second feature film version of the story. The first was released by RKO in 1940, and this was a commercial success. This was the first widescreen Disney film shot with Panavision lenses. And when shooting in widescreen, Disney had almost used a matted widescreen or filmed the movie in CinemaScope. So the film premiered in New York City on December 10th, 1960, and was put in general release on December 21st, 1960. It it received generally positive reviews and did well financially. It is considered one of the most iconic live-action Disney films. It was the highest-grossing film of the year. Um, In 1960, it beat out other hits of that year, such as Psycho, 
Spartacus and Exodus. Um, it's one actually adjusted for inflation. It's one of Disney's biggest hits of all times. Um, it's uh, the, now the film does make substantial changes to the plot of the original book. Um, the pirates and Roberta do not appear in the novel. A young lady named Jenny comes to live with them towards the end of the novel. She was shipwrecked on a neighboring island. In the novel, the family builds a number of structures, including a much less elaborate treehouse, but they ultimately settle in a cave. Um, the novel includes a fourth son named Jack, who is the third oldest. Um, there are many more large mammals, in addition to those seen in the films. Um, they encounter bears, jackals, lions, leopards, buffalo, and walruses. Um, there's some versions of the book because the book's been translated. There's hippos, rhinos, moose, and giraffes. Um, in the film, they just see tigers, elephants, zebras, cheetahs, and hyenas. Um, in the book, the family's heading to Australia. In the film, they're heading towards the German colony of New Guinea. And Turk is the name of one of the dogs, while the other is named Flora in the novel, whilst Turk is accompanied by Duke in the film. And, of course, this spawned what I think is one of the most um, creative attractions at, at a Disney theme park, and that's the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. So, um, yeah, no, and uh, when we talked about that, when we did our Adventureland <laughs> one, we uh, went went on great length of how the love, the love that we have for the attraction stemmed a lot because of the appreciation for the movie and can't, can't say enough good stuff for it. Uh, mm-hmm. I still enjoy it to this day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Tommy Kirk and Kevin Corcoran would go on to star in many, many Disney films during the course of their career. Yeah, together. no, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, one, of, one of the examples of when, uh, when you were getting to see all of the Disney stars from one movie then mix on to, to another one or two here and there, mm-hmm. bouncing around. So, yes. Yeah. But it was also a different time when you had people attached to a studio and not necessarily just uh, a movie as we have you know nowadays where anyone can bounce around and do whatever way they want in whichever studio they decide to so yeah um yeah because um dorothy mcguire was in a num- she was the mom in a number of disney films james MacArthur, of course was on third man mountain and um, that's one of the ones that i was going to bring up okay uh, and and janet monroe of course, it's in, uh, you know, Darby O'Gill and the Little People, yeah. amongst others. So why don't, you talk about, um, why don't you talk about Third Man in the Mountain? Uh, it's uh, Third Man in the Mountain. Uh, I Not a lot to say in terms of it. Uh, obviously, the, the plot is based around the Matterhorn, and, uh, and uh, James MacArthur is a star in it, and he is trying to climb the Matterhorn. But for me, the... The beauty of it is that they actually, you know, as I found out when I watched uh, the behind-the-scenes making of it and the movie itself all put together, you know, they 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 worked the effort to actually learn how to climb for this movie. They didn't climb the Matterhorn, but they did climb uh, a mountain that would be similar in conditions and, and went through the filming. But all of that was spawned from Walt taking a trip and seeing the Matterhorn when he was in Zermatt. And... Yeah, it, part of that to me it's just you know it, the movie 
doesn't contain any bit of him. But when you watch it, you just have to think, like, he went to this spot, and he saw that, and that's why we have the movie. That's why we have... Yeah, that's why we have the attraction then. Uh, we have the Matterhorn bobsleds. It, it all stemmed from him taking that trip and scouting out that location. And it's, it, it's worth watching just for that alone to see how, how it all snowballed from that one point. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was shot, um, in Zermatt, Switzerland because that was where, um, Walt Disney enjoyed skiing and and he loved and and even ideas that he got from Zermatt would inspire uh, the design of the Mineral King ski resort that they that he wanted to design in California that I did a um episode on years ago for um our Disneyland show and yeah on Walt Disney presents they did a whole episode on uh, on how difficult it was to make this film. Yeah, no, and it was uh, during the very first Treasures from the Disney Vault. Uh, they showed Third Man on the Mountain, and then uh, Perilous Assignment right mm-hmm. after that, which was that it, it, it bummed me out because I fell asleep for the first like. 10 minutes of perilous assignments but it is available um i believe on youtube to rent as well as itunes so mm-hmm. it is still it is still available to see but um yeah it's it's something that has to be seen yeah and they really capture the danger of mountain climbing in that yeah. film Oh, they absolutely I mean, you see did. james MacArthur climbing some climbing some of those peaks in that howling wind yeah all that yeah. I mean, and, yeah. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like he naturally knew how to do this. It was mm-hmm. part of the role. <laughs> it's yeah. insane. That would never happen. You wouldn't. Yeah. You'd never see Johnny Depp on the side of a mountain today. <laughs> no. <laughs> now another one on my list is um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Again, boyhood favorite. Loved the book. Um, this was uh, nineteen fifty four. Um, adventure film. It was the first science fiction film shot in Cinemascope. Um, this film was personally produced by Walt Disney through Walt Disney Productions. Um, it, star- it was directed by Richard Fleischer and it stars Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Paul Lucas, and Peter Lorre. It was the most international cast he had ever had up to that time. It was also the first feature-length Disney film to be distributed by Buena Vista Distribution. And of course, it's adapted from Jules Verne's 19th century novel, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This film is considered an early precursor of the steampunk genre. And uh, this received very positive reviews from critics. It was the second highest grossing film of the year. Guess what was the first um, highest grossing film of the year, Greg? And 54? Yeah, it's one you probably watch every holiday season. Uh, It's a Wonderful Life? (laughs) No, White Christmas. Oh, White Christmas. Yeah, It's Mm -hmm. Wonderful Life would have been way before that. Yeah. So it earned $8 million in box office attendance. And um, again, it's another notable classic of, of course, the Disney Studio. It won two Academy Awards in 1954 and was nominated for one more. It won Best Art Direction in Color 
um, for John Meehan and Emil Curry. It won Best Special Effects um, for John Hench and Joshua Medor. And it was nominated for Best Film Editing for Elmo Williams. What's sad is the film's primary art designer, who was Harper Goff, whom we've talked about in his um, significance of designing both Disneyland and, well, Disney World, he designed The Nautilus. And it was that design of The Nautilus. Walt already had a script for uh, outlined for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Harper Goff thought Walt should go in a different direction, couldn't convince him. So Harper on his own designed the Nautilus and showed it to Walt. And that convinced Walt they needed to go in a different direction with the film. But Harper was not a member of the Art Directors Union in 1954, and therefore, under a bylaw within the Academy of Motion Pictures, he was unable to receive his Academy Award for Art Direction. So, anyway. So, um, so of course, this uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea had its presence in theme parks. Disneyland used the original sets as a walkthrough attraction from 1955 to 1966. Um, Walt Disney World Resort's Magic Kingdom also had a dark ride named 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Submarine Voyage from 1971 to 1994. And it was very close to the film. It had of course, the Nautilus subs. It had the giant squid, squid attack, and it had an arrangement of the main theme from the 1954 film, playing on Captain Nemo's organ in the background. And for this ride, um, voice artist Pete Renaday stood in for James Mason in the role of Captain Nemo. Um, in 1994, a walkthrough attraction at Disneyland Paris um, named, I'm not even going to attempt it in French, but basically the mysteries of the Nautilus um, opened. And there's a dark ride at Tokyo Disney Sea um, that opened in 2001, very loosely based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But uh, I, I just can't get enough of this film. This is one I really enjoy. Yeah, no, I, I uh, completely agree with you. It's, uh, you know, it's a it's a guilty pleasure. It's it stands right up there with Swiss Family Robinson is mm-hmm. one of those go to movies you just have to watch over and over again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, it's I think one of their um, greatest achievements. Um, now, the Reluctant Dragon is next on my list. It was released in 1941. It's live action and animated, and it was released by RKO Radio Pictures on June 20th, 1941. The reason I included this because it's essentially it's a tour of the almost brand new Walt Disney Studio in Burbank, California. And it stars a very popular radio comedian of the time, Robert Benchley. And we get to see many Disney animators and other staff members, such as Ward Kimball, Fred Moore, Norm Ferguson, Clarence Nash, and Walt Disney all playing themselves. Um, Now, the first 20 minutes of the film are in grayscale and black and white and the remainder is in Technicolor. And much of the film is live action, and there's four short animated segments inserted into it. Um, There's a black-and-white segment featuring Casey Jr. from Dumbo, 
There's three Technicolor cartoons, Baby Weems, Goofy's How to Ride a Horse, and then the extended-length short The Reluctant Dragon, based on Kenneth Graham's book of the same name. And this was released right in the middle of the Disney's animator strike of 1941. So the premiere of the film was picketed by strikers who attacked Disney for unfair business practices, low pay, lack of recognition, and favoritism. And um, at one theater, sympathizers paraded down the street wearing a dragon costume bearing the legend, The Reluctant Disney. And critics and audiences are put off by the fact that the film was not a new Disney animated um, feature film. So it was just basically a collection of four short cartoons with some live action vignettes tossed in. So it um, it w- did not make back its money. It cost six hundred thousand to make. It returned only four hundred thousand at the box office. And but what this is is it's basically Robert Benchley's at home. And he he's trying to sell he wants to sell the rights of the reluctant dragon to um, to Walt Disney because he thinks it'd make a great film. But he's really he doesn't want to do it. He's putting it off. His wife finally convinces him to do it. She drives him to the Walt Disney Studios. She leaves him at the studio gate, and she goes off shopping. And so um, he. He, he arrives at the studio and he sort of dodges the studio guide and he wanders around the studio and that's where he basically takes us on a tour of Disney and how do you, of, of film animation and its whole process and it's some of it's explained by um, a, an employee named Doris who's Francis Gifford and then um, they go through and he goes into a classroom where animators are learning how to caricature people and animals by observing the real thing. He sees a film score and voice recording session featuring Clarence Nash, who Nash, who is the voice of Donald Duck, and Florence Gill, who is the voice of Clarence um, Cluck. There's a Foley session for a cartoon featuring Casey Jr. from Dumbo. And then in the camera room, there's a demonstration of the multi-plane camera. And that's when the film turns from grain scale, grayscale to black, uh, to technicolors like The Wizard of Oz. And, um, and then that's when, uh, and then, then he goes to the ink and paint department. And that's when he sees, um, a, a completed cell of Bambi. He goes to the maquette department and sees a lot of the different maquettes, including maquettes of films that had been delayed by World War II and wouldn't be completed until the 1950s, like um, maquettes from Lady and the Tramp, Captain Hook, and Tinkerbell from Peter Pan, and all that. And then um, the employee there makes a maquette of himself, which many years later was purchased and owned by um, director Chuck Jones over at Warner Brothers. He goes to the storyboard department, goes through that whole process. He goes in the animation room, and he, that's where he meets up with Ward Kimball, Fred Moore, Norm um, Ferguson, and he watches them animating Goofy for a new Goofy cartoon, How to Ride a Horse, and um, that would come out in 1950. And then he finally um, finds Walt Disney, and he um, and Walt is there, and um, 
Walt says, "Hey, why don't I want to I want to show you this? Um, I'm screening a, a, a take from a film we're working on, and much to Benchley's um, relief, it's of course the Reluctant Dragon." <laughs> So anyway, so this is just a fun film, but mainly for all the behind the scenes um, glimpses we get of the Walt Disney Studio. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things. If you ever think you're going to visit the studio or you have plans on visiting the studio, you have to watch this <clears throat> first uh, or you really can't appreciate your experience there. Um you know that's it's it's one of those things that I watched every now and then uh, before my first time going, and then once I was on there, I felt like I was home because I had I had watched this so often uh, throughout the years, and it's you know it's it's not perfect. I won't I won't sit here and try to say it. it's it's the best thing that's ever been made before, but it definitely has its merits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's worth watching, and the film is cute. So anyway, I like the Reluctant Dragon. Um, speaking of the studio, <laughs> uh, another one on my list, although it's not for historical accuracy, is Saving Mr. Banks. Um, this is was, of course, released in 2013. It's centered on the development of the 1964 film Mary Poppins. The film stars Emma Thompson as author P.L. Travers and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney. And... Um, it derives its title from the father in Travers' story. Um, Saving Mr. Banks depicts the author's um, you know, two-week-long meetings during 1961 in Los Angeles, during which Disney attempts to obtain the screen rights for her novels. And the film was shot almost entirely in the Southern California area, primarily the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, where a majority of the film's um, narrative takes place. Um this this was very successful at the box office. It was released on October 20th, 2013 at the London Film Festival and in the United States on December 13th and got very positive reviews. And there were a lot of um, awards given to this from Golden Globes, Screen Actors Guild Awards, Critics' Choice Award nominations, things like that. Um, so... Um, the largest set built for the film was the interior of the Walt Disney Studios animation buildings, which um, was referred to as a character in the story. Um, and also the exterior of the Beverly Hills Hotel and Dis Walt Disney's personal office are recreated. And um, so it was it, a lot of things in the film are not accurate. Like Walt already had the rights to Mary Poppins. So, um, but but they really worked hard at getting costumes, getting hair. Um, Emma Thompson wore jewelry they had borrowed from the Walt Disney Family Museum in order to make sure she had the right period of jewelry. And um, they made sure in wardrobe that um, Hank's wardrobe included the smoke tree ranch emblem from Palm Springs was embroidered on his neckties. Um, you know, the design department had to recreate, you know, the Disney character costumes that were in 1960. They also had to, um, they even redressed Disneyland for that visit. Well, didn't take her to Disneyland, someone else did. But they redressed um, the Main Street, even to where they put in the, the, the store windows, displays, 
that were there in 1960, even though we really didn't get to see them. They tried to be as careful as possible in the camera angles not to show, uh, you know, um, attractions that didn't exist there. They had trouble in Fantasyland because, as we know, Fantasyland was rebuilt in 1983. So there's nothing they could do about that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things. You know, Walt actually left Burbank to vacation in Palm Springs a few days into Travers' visit. So he wasn't there when several of the scenes depicted in the present actually took place. But a lot of the dialogue between him and Travers was taken from letters, telegrams, and telephone um, correspondence between them. Um, Travers was assigned a limo driver, but the character of Ralph is fictionalized, and he's actually an amalgamation of several studio drivers. And um, the the whole um, the, the the whole. Uh, thing is is that she was emotionally moved during the premiere of Mary Poppins you know attributed because it was attributed to feelings of her father well she showed emotion was actually the result of anger and frustration over the film and how it how it finally looked and um, and she was resentful for many many years um, over the film but I still think this is worth seeing just to see they did such a good job recreating the studio, recreating that era. I think this this inspired them to actually um, restore Walt's office that you can see on certain tours of the Walt Disney Studio that you and I did. We went on one of the first ones together. Um, I For me, it's fun to see... Um, the Disneyland I remember as a boy and how we dressed in that era um, to go to Disneyland because going to Disneyland was an event so we dressed up for it and um, so I love this film and I just put aside the historical you know <laughs> inaccuracies yeah um, which you have to no but mm-hmm. it's uh this is one of those movies I try to at least watch or listen to the soundtrack uh, as I'm heading out to California every single time I go. I, it just, it, like you said, you ignore the inaccuracies and just take it for what it gave us. And that was, you know, we all want that grand, that grand biography of Walt Disney that I don't know if it will ever come and I don't know who could truly tackle the role um, once it did happen but you know Walt, uh, Tom Hanks did uh, a stand up job uh, with the material that was given to him to do his best Walt Disney and we, we got a, a fictional but enjoyable movie out of it and mm-hmm. it's definitely definitely worth watching and rewatching. Absolutely, yeah, and I do. I watch it every time I, I fly to either I'm flying out to Walt Disney World or I'm flying from Walt Disney World back home. I watch yeah. it. It's so, it, yeah. it's a good plane movie, yeah, but because it it's in there a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at the end of your live action because it I was. have a couple what, that I'll just. Yeah. Uh, what do you have? Just for uh, it won't go in depth in any of them, just because I know we. Uh, we're already going on 90 minutes of talking here, but uh, I, I feel like you have to say Davy Crockett. Um, Absolutely. You know, that's that's essential to watching. Um, you, you choose if you want to watch the individual episodes um, or watch the, the movies that were kind of comprised 
all together in it. Regardless, you have to watch Fess Parker as Davy Crockett some way or the other. Um, I also enjoy Johnny Tremaine a lot. Uh, yes. It's, you know, it's it's one of those ones you're not going to get a, a whole lot of details on Walt and who he was with it, but uh, it, it really surprised me. It, it, it had a lot of that same feel that Davy Crockett does, just not the same amount of significance um, going with television and that uh, is Zorro, of course. Um, you, you have to check out Zorro if you've never given a chance and track down the Walt Disney Treasures box set with Zorro. That will be a big help um, to really get a grasp on that. And then the very final one that um, I, I think goes without saying because we already basically covered it with Saving Mr. Banks, but you have to watch Mary Poppins. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, if you haven't watched it, I don't know why you're listening to this. Um, You should put it on pause and go watch Mary Poppins. And uh, sorry, I also forgot Babes in Toyland. Uh, Just another one. Uh, It still doesn't really hold up to this day, but has a lot of importance. And Babes in Toyland even had that history with Disneyland as well too so it's it got a lot of ties in there um and it's a nice holiday film even though it's very loose for the holidays (laughs) and long (laughs) and long yeah and not great that was that was the film when walt after walt watched the final film before it was released he said i guess we can't make a musical (laughs) but then he followed it up with Mary Poppins. <laughs> there you go. So, um, I'm I, and it was all good. And especially if for our our um, listeners who go to the Magic Kingdom, Johnny Tremaine gives you uh, you can see its influence on Liberty Square. Um, there. So, anyway, um, documentaries. We've I really mentioned them. I'm just going to sort of zip through the ones on my list, except for one. I'm going to because we haven't touched on it. Uh, Walt Disney Treasures, Disneyland USA, definitely is a, it's the park that started it all, and um, you do see the Disneyland story where Walt introduces Disneyland to the American public on on Walt Disney Presents. Also, um, Dateline Disneyland. It's it's the full version of the live. Um, you know, television, you know, premiere of Disneyland doesn't exist anymore for reasons, you know, um, that they had to cut sections out because they couldn't get permission from different people's estates and all that. Like uh, the Mickey, the, the Mickey Mouse Club segments are all removed. Um, there's a few other segments um, that are gone from it, but um, it's still really worth seeing it also has one that i love it's disneyland after dark um is on there where you see a lot of the mouseketeers in there um bobby rydell who's a big heartthrob on there um the osmond brothers when they're little are on there and um they also have disneyland's 10th anniversary there which is when that was my day um in the club so I always enjoy that. But that's when a lot uh, you get to ride a lot of the attractions and on that one. So it's a lot of fun. Um, Walt Disney Treasures, your host, Walt Disney. Some really good thing Walt, there, from um, Where Do Stories Come From, in which Walt um, 
uh, talks about and they reenact how they got uh, their uh, their inspiration for some of the characters, some of their shorts, um, for their true life adventures, things like that. Um, anyway, uh, how hobbies can motivate the Disney animators, things like that. They have the fourth anniversary show that's on there. And um, they have Kodak Presents Disneyland 59, which this was a live special that they thought was lost forever. So um, it's really cool to um, see this one. And this is well before. And what's cool is, is that um, it kicks off with a parade in Main Street, USA. And the, But what's neat is the parade shows cultures from around the world. This is way before It's a Small World or Epcot's World Showcase. Um, you can also see Walt and his grandchildren in here very briefly and so um, and this is also the dedication of the park's three new attractions the submarine voyage the disneyland monorail and the matterhorn bobsled so it's really cool and of course it's kodak presents so you'll get to see a lot of vintage kodak um, um commercials in there you already mentioned craig walt disney treasures disneyland's secret stories and magic that was on um mine as well yeah no, and the only uh, other Walt Disney treasures that I think is a standout um, is uh, the Tomorrowland. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Tomorrowland box set that had stuff like uh, Man in Space, yes. uh, Man in the Moon, Mars and Beyond. Um, of course, the, the second disc has uh, something we've talked at great length about, and that, of course, is the, uh, the Epcot promotional film. Um, and then one of my favorite videos talked about it on a recent Dispop episode was uh, the the Sherman Brothers uh, performing There's a Great Big Beautiful yes. Tomorrow with Walt Disney just just absolutely fantastic um, it, it is really a great set and it, it really helps you to discover why Tomorrowland is so important but it also points out why Tomorrowland is just a shell of what it could should be, um, mm-hmm. because when when they did the research on this stuff, and I mean, in the one episode they had uh, Werner von Braun in it, who um, rocket scientist, uh, also very heavily talked about in um, oh like the film October Sky with Jake mm-hmm. Gyllenhaal back in the nineties, like it's. You know, they, they they talk about him in that movie as a hero, and I saw that before then. I saw him actually being in the uh, the Man in the Moon short, uh, or in the Disneyland episode. And so that, that, that just shows the dedication that they put in, and the predictions that they made in these as well, too, were just out of this world. Uh, you, It's really something that you have to watch, and um, and not on any of the treasures from my recollection and probably something I haven't seen since uh, the Disney Channel used to actually be good and featured um, <laughs> featured stuff from the past uh, and not just, you know, their way of looking back is showing reruns of Hannah Montana now. Um, I digress, though, but I, I remember watching uh, with my dad when I was really young um, uh, a Disneyland or Wonderful World of Color episode 
where uh, Kurt Russell was at Disneyland with the Osmonds. Yeah. And uh, they rode the Haunted Mansion. And the, I, I, I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. But it was one of those things that it captivated me when I was a kid. And a lot because my dad was sitting there saying, I remember watching this, too, when I was a kid. And um, it's from everything I remember of it, I part of me bringing it up is I need to remember to, to track it down and rewatch it again. But I remember that being incredible as and well. And then too. there was the... the- the girl, girl, the actress who's faded into obscurity but was really popular at the time was also in that one. Can't remember her name. Oh, uh, anyway. So, but she joined them on their romp around the park. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, anyway, well, another yeah, another. I agree. Tomorrowland is fantastic. The 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 box set there. Yeah. Um, a documentary that I think we'll have a bit to say, Waking Sleeping Beauty, Must See. This yeah. is a, a 2009 documentary directed by, what's interesting is it's all by Disney insiders. Um, Disney film producer Don Hahn, and it was produced by Hahn and former Disney executive Peter Snyder. This film documents the history of Walt Disney feature animation from 1984 to 94. It covers um, the rise of a period that that's called the Disney Animation Renaissance. Um, I know we one of the books we recommended in our previous episode, Disney 101, was Disney War. And I know a number of you out there are reading that book right now because you've been telling me about it. This covers that period that's in Disney War. Um, so this begins in the early 1980s and Ron Miller, while Disney's son-in-law, was still... Um, directing the Walt Disney Company. Many new animators had joined the company after graduating from CalArts, but animation at the time was considered a dying art. So Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, resigned from the company during a corporate takeover attempt by Saul Steinberg. And this led to um, Miller's um, ousting. Um, Roy returned to the studio's vice chairman of the board of directors, and chairman of the animation department, Roy employed Michael Eisner and Frank Wells as the new chairman and the new president. And Eisner hired Jeffrey Katzenberg as head of the film division. And then he um, he was a bit controversial, so he moved over to the animation department to an off-site building in um, Glendale, California. Um so and then Roy hired Peter Schneider to be president of Walt Disney Feature Animation and he animate and he um modernized the whole animation process and um the you know and then the Disney Renaissance started they 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 utilized the new cap system which was a blend of traditional computer animation um and then they uh, you know they Success of Beauty and the Beast um, created the new animation building as a reward for the hard work, but Katzenberg was unaware of this. This was all done behind his back. So, um, you know, then Frank Wells, so Katzenberg was upset. Frank Wells dies in a helicopter crash. After Wells' death, Katzenberg expected to become the new company president. He was denied the position by Eisner. Katzenberg um, resigned, um, and then everything just started falling apart. Tension between Eisner and and Roy Disney just 
grew to there's a scene in this film where they're both on stage and the tension and the dislike they have for each other you can just cut it with a knife you know i mean um this so you basically see the fall rise and fall of disney animation in this um in this this documentary yeah, and the and the initial fall is is the critical parts to watch in this because I mean that the, the it was a brilliant documentary in the way they structured it because it does start out right in that time period of um, the Great Mouse Detective where they felt like they were doing something okay but they all were under they were all under the premise that like okay we we could be out of a job at any point in time now. So we just have to appreciate everything, uh, while we have it. And, um, you know, and then to see, to see the turnaround and once it picks up with the little mermaid coming in and it, it starts showing off the footage of, uh, Jody Benson in studio singing part of your world, uh, for mm-hmm. some of the first times. So that's when it's, it, it just booms and goes, Obviously, through through some of the tough parts with Howard Ashman and just pinnacles right at the Lion King, um, but it's it's one of those documentaries. Just watching it once isn't enough, and um, you know, it, for me, I, I enjoy the aspect that it basically chronicles the period of Disney that I was alive and growing up through. That I, I didn't understand all this stuff that was happening. And no recollection of it at the time, only that I enjoyed everything that came out of it. So it's so awesome to be able to sit back and watch it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I love this documentary. My only problem with it is I don't, I did not see it soon enough. Uh, I, I, I didn't see it till a couple of years after it was already out. And I, what was I missing all that time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a, it's excellent and i mean they really show the warts of what was going on you know there and this was all sanctioned this was completely sanctioned by the walt disney studios you know don Hahn narrated this and um yeah it's it's definitely worth seeing absolutely so, um, yeah. Um, that's going to quickly get in. Oh, is there, were there any other documentaries you wanted to add in? That is, I already brought up what Mel Grupo before. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's still not a lot of great documentaries out there. Uh, the, the Sherman Brothers documentary is also yes. uh, pretty fascinating. I know that was on Netflix for a while, but that kind of disappeared off. Um, we, we, we just need more yeah. Disney documentaries in general. Yeah, that that's uh, the Sherman Brothers one. I'd forgotten about that. That's a heartbreaking one. Yeah, it really yeah, it is. is. Yeah, we will have that on our Disney two hundred one. Yeah, <laughs> but um, music and recording. Speaking of the Sherman Brothers, there's just a few. If you want some audio um, to round out your experience here, um, some things that my go tos that I listen to because I listen to a lot of Disney music. Musical history of Disneyland. If you can still get this, the 50th anniversary CD box set. This is a collection of over six discs. There's field recordings, rare radio excerpts. It's a soundtrack to all the major attractions 
at Disneyland from like its first year up to its 50th year. Um, it's divided by lands. Um, it's, it, this is, it's brilliant. Um, the, the level of musical detail that's in the Disney theme park is really laid out here. And, um, it's probably my most played Disney album that I have. Um, me, mine too. Yeah. So, um, and there's also a really nice um, hardbound book that comes with it, The Sounds of Disneyland, and it has rare photos, concept drawings, essays, and all that. But um, this this was worth getting. Yeah, know. and it's also they have the uh, if you can still find the copies, which I've, I've looked on eBay every now and then just to get a backup. Um, they have the it also came with the Walt takes you to Disneyland right vinyl pressing on it and you know vinyl has since that box set came out 11 years ago 12 years ago now vinyl has had such a resurgence and so if you're a vinyl collector track that down um, mm-hmm. it's it's a great great uh, great album I have that one too yeah that is good and um and a lot of even the Disney original albums, they're out there on iTunes. They're releasing them again, re-releasing them. And then they are releasing some of them back on vinyl again. You just have to keep an eye out for them. Um, another one, and this is still available um, from Walt Disney Music. Um, Walt Disney and the 1964 World's Fair box set. This is... Uh, it's a behind-the-scenes peek at the um, 1964 pavilions that the Disney created from the World's Fair, for the World's Fair, from concept to design to execution. Um, the and you know, as you know, we've talked about a lot of these are made into permanent attractions. First, at Disneyland, and then the Magic Kingdom, and even the, some of the international parks. Um, they they have the five CDs cover each of the attractions. They have the song demos, early script reads, various mixes of the finished song um, recordings. There's a full hour of It's a Small World if you are really if you really love that attraction. There's a beautiful 24 page um, booklet in it. So uh, like I said, this is still available. So I would definitely get this. Yeah, via the uh, Disney Music Emporium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the Disney Music Emporium, our Walt Disney Records, the Legacy Collection box set. This celebrates a milestone anniversaries for twelve films. Um, it's and the series of albums um, features remastered versions of one hundred thirty songs, two hundred seventy instrumentals, the seventy five lost chords or deleted songs and demos, and more. Um, so they have The Lion King, Mary Poppins, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Cinderella, Toy Story, Pocahontas, Lady and the Tramp, um, The Aristocats. Uh, there's the there's a Disneyland um, CD that was the 60th anniversary album. A lot of it's from the 50th anniversary set that we just talked about. And it has none of the 60th anniversary stuff in it, like... Um, you know, paint the, paint night, the night and, exactly. and, you know, and world Disneyland color forever. and all that. Yeah. So anyway, so um, so th- this is definitely getting the legacy collection. If if you love animated film soundtracks, you'll like this, especially for all the bonus material. Yeah, and I I 
per, I have all of them, as I'm sure you do. The ones do. that <laughs> the ones that I think are the standout ones, um, the Lion King, because mm-hmm. this is the first time you get like actually the entire score on uh, CD, and it's it's some great stuff. Uh, Mary Poppins, because on the third disc, I believe it has a lot of those recordings that happened in the um, in the sessions with PL Travers and the Sherman Brothers and um, uh, Don DeGrotti. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it has all of those on there. It's just fascinating. I, I know you can hear a little bit of that in the end, uh, in the final credits of Saving Mr. Banks, but this is a good amount of them. And yeah. You find out how crazy she just genuinely was, um, and then the Pinocchio one I think is is also incredible. Uh, having that that full full score, and then my other favorite one is uh, Toy Story. Having that entire full score from Randy Newman, it's it, it, it was a dream. Um, this this box set has been the greatest thing. Uh, in Disney music in quite a while, probably since that 50th anniversary box set. And I only wish that they can continue uh, on with the series and do more because the, every single album needs this treatment. Yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, the Sleeping Beauty one is nice too because they have a lot of songs on it that were edited out. Yeah. And I, I enjoy listening to those, the Lost Chords. Oh, yeah, no. So, and uh, I also, I play the little mermaid one very regularly as well as cinderella and um even the pocahontas one i pocahontas is not my favorite disney movie by any stretch but i mean you when you listen to this legacy soundtrack uh you really gain a bigger appreciation for the music itself and it. mm-hmm. it's it's actually very very good Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the, of all the ones they released for this set, the, the, the biggest disappointment was the Disneyland set. Yes. But if you can't get the 50th anniversary collection, get this CD, because it has some of what's on the 50th anniversary one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Craig, I that's all I have on, on my little syllabus here for our Disney 101 series so is there anything you wanted to add um that is yeah i i don't think i have anything else to add gosh uh we we went over everything i know we uh, did a pretty good job of (laughs) knocking out all of the uh the books the first time around but i think we just did a stand-up job with the the movies and music and a little bit of television and shorts Mm -hmm. mixed in there too so uh all, all I can say is, at this point, to everyone out there, start start get cracking on all yeah. this stuff. You have you have a lot to read, watch, and listen to. <laughs> oh yeah, I think between our two Disney one hundred and one episodes of connecting with Walt, you you all now have at least a year's worth of reading, watching films, and listening to music ahead of you. If so, not a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So finish with all this, and you'll be able to dazzle your friends and family with your knowledge of Disney. So. So, so Craig, what do you think about making our recommendations an annual episode and continue with a Disney 201 next year? I, I think we should. So we yeah. can definitely get deeper into things. And yeah. like, especially with where we covered those Walt Disney treasures, uh, 
box sets that you can get. There are so many uh, individual Disneyland episodes and mm-hmm. wonderful World of Color episodes out there that you can still find uh, if you're dedicated enough to take the time and get, getting into those individual shorts that had an impact like we've already done with the Alice series. Uh, we, we, we have a lot more that we can cover. Oh, absolutely. So, so, um, well, please join us next time, speaking of covering in more depth, for episode 29 of Connecting with Walt, in which Craig and I continue our examination of Walt Disney's animated films as we jump into the history of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit with artist, filmmaker, and author Dave Bossert. Um, Craig, until our next episode, where else can our listeners find you on the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network? Well, you can find me every Tuesday on the Disney World Edition Podcast. You can find me uh, Wednesdays doing minisodes and other random stuff uh, when they're released. Thursdays on the Universal Edition Podcast. And uh, I will be Hopefully now, uh, should have already started, but I will hopefully now be more or less regularly appearing on Dispop, giving a little bit more expertise into my uh, vast amount of Disney movie knowledge and uh, and music knowledge, you know, even though sometimes people don't agree with what I have to say. If you want to hear it, you're going to have to listen to me saying it, too. Well, all of this <laughs> is just based on our opinions. So. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, and you can find me every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Disneyland Edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks, and the Walt Disney Family Museum, and even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. On Facebook, Michael Bowling. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. Roy.